0: we were talking about propagation in layered material last time. And we were assuming that we had homogeneous, isotropic layers that were stacked up to form some repetitive structure. And because they were layers, we knew how to treat um, the behavior of the fields at the interfaces. And that let us figure out how the light would propagate through one layer. Once we knew how it went, would go through one layer, we knew how it would go through every layer. And we could um, then calculate for light coming in, what comes out doesn't come out, it has to be reflected. That let us analyze stacks that are used for high reflection coatings or um, some other sort of exotic coatings. There was one slide that I showed that uh, had a couple errors in it. Some were errors in mathematics, and some were errors in judgment on my part in choosing uh, the parameters that went into it. It looked like this only not like this. This is the new and improved version. So this was a plot that was meant to show that certain frequencies at certain angles can propagate through a dielectric stack, whereas others can't. And these black bands, were we call the uh, band gaps, the regions in frequency and angle space at which propagating solutions weren't allowed. And those corresponded to regions where the uh, block K vector was imaginary. Therefore, there was attenuation. And the point of these plots is that for the Tm waves, and that was mislabeled on the previous slide, and therefore in your notes, um, and for the Tm waves, those are the ones where the electric field is in the plane of incidence, So if you have reflection and refraction at a surface, going from n1 to n2, you can define a polarization direction that we call uh, tm, meaning the magnetic field is transverse to this plane that contains the incident reflected and refracted rays. That means the electric field is in the plane. I've drawn in red the polarization of the electric field, and what you get then is the uh, electric charge oscillations, the, the polarization of the material that's described by the D field, uh, is in a direction that for the right geometry, I didn't quite draw that on the board, for the right geometry, you can get the oscillations of that uh, electric displacement in the material to be orthogonal to the di- direction of the reflected ray. Okay, and if that's the case, these oscillating electric charges, which are the source for the light that scatters back and forms a, a reflected ray, they can't radiate in that direction because they're little antennas where the dipole of the antenna is oriented like so. And the dipole antenna pattern forbids them from radiating along their axis. So think of it from the direction of the electric ray, you don't see any acceleration of these charges. You need to have a component of the motion of the charges transverse to the direction that you're looking. What's that angle of incidence called? That's Brewster's angle, right? And the reflection coefficient for the TM waves is zero there, and that's what this—that's this angle on the plot. And so, even if you follow along a uh, one of these band gaps, the width of that band gap goes to zero at that point, at that angle, because there's no reflection off of any of the interfaces. The light necessarily has to transmit through your layered stack. And it doesn't matter whether you're looking at the first band gap or the second band gap. At any frequency at that angle, all the light has to be transmitted. So the key thing is there, that was for TM waves. And that was labeled as the TE plot before. Um, The TE plot doesn't do anything special at Brewster's angle. The reflection coefficient, if you think about it in terms of this picture, if you think about an electric displacement that's transverse to this plane, so in and out of the board, um, that can radiate efficiently into this reflected wave Regardless of the angle of incidence, nothing special happens. And so the bandgap does what it does. And should not go to zero at Brewster's angle. And in the plots that I showed, it was a peculiarity of the fact that I chose that to be a quarter wavelength stack for incidence at Brewster's angle, which caused it to look like that went to zero. So anyhow, um, you can pretty much put an x through that slide. Refer to this one, which is posted in the slide corrections (laughs) discussion board. That's not where I was going. Okay, so what we're going to do today is relax our assumption that our materials are um, homogeneous. There's still going to be isotropic. But now instead of having layers, we're going to allow the material to have a smoothly varying index of refraction. So we can't just treat light as reflecting off of well-defined boundaries between two materials. There can be a a smooth gradient. There can still be a periodicity. We can still treat that as being a a reflector, um, but we can't model it using the same mathematics. What we'll derive here, also applies to the case where we have discrete layers Um, but it's just more general than that so we'll start with uh, the wave equation and we'll plug in a couple things we'll plug in an arbitrary wave so an electric field that's composed of a number of different plane waves so that is to say the wave isn't necessarily a, a plane wave it may have some uh, spread to it. It may be a beam. And a permittivity that's not constant, but is a function of the position uh, in the material. And we're going to do the one-dimensional case. And we'll call the direction of periodicity Z. So the layers are stacked up along Z, if you like. And so that's periodic, so we can write it as a Fourier sum. Periodicity, again, has a uh, wavelength of capital Lambda. And the L f- term in the Fourier series corresponds to a frequency at 2 pi L over capital Lambda. So we'll plug this expression in for epsilon, this expression in for E, and there's the result of doing that. That's the wave equation. And we'll do a trick in order to uh, get rid of this term right here. What we'll do is we'll define some k vector, k prime, as being k plus the k vector associated with the grading, if you like, and substitute that k, well, solve this for k and substitute that in here. So when we do that, this k becomes k prime minus 2 pi l over lambda. And more importantly, this e to the minus i kz becomes e to the minus this term times z. But we've also got a factor of e to the minus i 2 pi l over lambda z. And this term right here will cancel e to the minus i times minus 2 pi L over lambda. And so the exponent ends up just being e to the minus i kz. But this uh, this additional k vector component gets folded into the amplitude of the plane waves. So, here is the amplitude at a shifted frequency. And because we had the frequency of our plane waves shifted by this term, and then we shift it back by the same amount, we recover our um, e to the minus a, i, k prime z. And since we integrate over k prime, and over here we integrate over k, um, we can now... Substitute this K prime back as K. And because we're integrating over it, it's just a dummy variable. And so we can factor out the E to the minus A. Why do I keep saying A? E to the minus I, K, Z. And everything else goes into the parentheses. And so this is our wave equation for an arbitrary wave with a periodic material. And in order for this to equal 0, we can require that this term in parentheses equals 0 for every possible value of k. And if it is, then when we integrate it over all possible values of k, then trivially it will equal 0. So this becomes the result of our wave equation when we make those substitutions. So let's look at this, uh, what this says. It says that if we have some amplitude for the electric field with a particular wave vector, k, then this term's not going to be 0. And so this term can't be 0 either. There needs to be an amplitude for the electric field at a different wave vector that's shifted by some number of grating grading K vectors. So 2 pi over capital lambda, I'll call the grading K vector. In order for this this expression to be zero. So there's a coupling between the field amplitudes at K and the field amplitudes at K plus or minus any integer number of uh, grading K vectors away. So this represents an infinite set of equations because you have an infinite number of L's. But the only ones that are coupled are the ones where the k vectors are separated by discrete values. Okay, so if you think of all the possible values of the k vector, and I've just sort of written a cartoon of what that would look like k vectors going anywhere from 0 up to infinity, um, you have this infinite set of equations that couple them all, but it's only one spaced every 2 pi over capital Lambda that are coupled. So 0, and 1, 1, and 2. Um, is not the 0 also coupled with 2, 3? Yeah, the 0 is coupled to 1, to 2, to all the integers. The 1, if you had a value of k lambda over 2 pi is point 0.1, it would be coupled to the one 1.1, one, 2.1, 3.1. But the point 0.1 wouldn't be coupled to the 0 would not be. They're only coupled when they're separated by an integer number of gradient k vectors. And so instead of considering this an infinite number of k vectors going from minus infinity to plus infinity, we can consider it an infinite number of coupled equations where the k vector goes from 0 to 1. And those aren't the plane wave k vectors, but those are the block K k vectors. So reminder that the block wave is a superposition of all the plane waves that together propagate as a mode. Those are plane waves that have k vectors of 0, 1, 2, all the coupled terms go together. And we'll call that uh, that mode of propagation a block wave. And we'll define it by a particular block wave vector. And we'll usually choose the the smallest value of k, so the the plane waves at k lambda over 2 pi, 0, 1, 2, 3, all the integer ones, we can call that a block wave vector of 0. And because we know that wave vector is coupled to all the, one, all the other wave vectors that are an integer multiple of the gradient k vector away, that would be the same wave as if we said uh, a block wave with a k vector of 1. They're the same wave because they can contain the same uh, coupling terms. So we only need to define this set of coupled equations over the range uh, between 0 and 2 pi. Uh, sorry, between 0 and 2 pi over capital lambda. Okay, so this is our definition, or our description of what the block wave vector is this is a block wave and we only need to consider components between 0 and 2 pi over capital lambda to produce the given form of the electric field propagating through the material and in order to solve for what these amplitudes are we'll use this what we call the dispersion relationship It's the result of the the wave equation that relates K and omega. Okay, so here is that dispersion relationship. And we can expand this sum, at least into the first few terms, in order to gain an understanding of what it looks like and how we can make some sense out of it. So, first we have our k squared e naught k. And now I'm going to replace this lowercase k which was our optical plane wave k vector with capital k which is our block wave vector this capital k is basically the same thing as little k in the sense that um, we will what we call our capital we can there's a degeneracy in what we call uh, the spatial frequency of a block wave. We can pick a value of k. Since there's an infinite number of coupled plane waves that make up a block wave, we can describe the block wave by any of those frequency components. We can choose the frequency component that's closest to the optical k vector, and then say this big k essentially is the same magnitude as little k, except that when written in this form represents an entire This represents a plane wave at a particular frequency. Knowing how all the plane waves at that frequency, uh, what their amplitudes have to be, allow us to figure out what the block wave form at that frequency is, which I suspect will be more straightforward once we've done an example flip side to that is, until we get through some of, the, some of the analysis, I don't think it's possible to do the example and make sense of it. Okay, So if it's a little unclear, um, that's okay. It's a little unclear to me right now, too. But by the end of the lecture, I'm sure to understand it perfectly well. Okay, so anyhow, we're sub- basically just substituting little k for big k in this equation. And here's the first term. Then we have the l equals zero term here, which I've written here. And in order to make the zero, the DC Fourier component of epsilon not look like epsilon naught, I've used this uh, striped through zero notation. So this represents the zeroth component of the Fourier expansion of epsilon. It's not epsilon naught, it's the average value of epsilon, the DC value, or the space average value of epsilon. So this is just the L equals zero term from the sum. And because L equals zero, that means there's no effect from the gradient K vector. And if that's all we had, meaning if our material was not periodic, just uniform, that's all we would have. We wouldn't have any higher order um, spatial frequency components to epsilon. Then this would just look like um, the standard dispersion relation, it's what you get when you try a sinusoidal solution in the wave equation and you say k over omega squared is mu epsilon. That's how you derive the speed of light in the material. But there are frequency components to epsilon. and So we get an epsilon 1 term and an epsilon minus 1 term. So for the epsilon 1 term, L equals 1, and we get k minus 2 pi over lambda. For the minus 1 term, if L equals minus 1, so we get plus two, 2 pi over lambda. And there's an infinite number of these, potentially. So this can go on and on and on. But what we can do is we can solve for any particular frequency component that we wish to. So to solve, for example, the plane wave amplitude at spatial frequency k, we just move all terms that don't depend on that to the right. That's everything from here on over. And then we divide through by k squared minus omega squared mu epsilon 0. So that's this factor here. All the terms that were on the right that were minus become positive and there are the terms in these parentheses. So we solved for the amplitude of one plane wave component of our block wave form in terms of the amplitude of the other plane wave components. And we can do that for the lowest order component, or the minus first or plus first order components, or any component that we wish. We would just pick, pick the frequency component we're interested in. We would isolate it by keeping it on the left, putting everything else on the right, and we'd solve for it. Why we do this is because we can see that the amplitude of this term will become significant when the denominator becomes small. And so we can say that the amplitude of the plane wave component at spatial frequency k is going to be large when k squared equals omega squared mu epsilon 0. So remember, Epsilon 0 is just the average value for the permittivity in the material. And if we have a wave vector, that would be a propagating solution in an isotropic material of that average value. Then k squared equals omega squared mu epsilon, epsilon 0. So this term goes to 0 at the frequency component, which would propagate spatial frequency component that would correspond to a temporal frequency component, omega, in a material of permittivity, epsilon zero. These other terms, though, are only going to be significant if not just the value of k equals omega squared mu epsilon zero, but K minus one grading vector, or plus one grading vector, or however, whichever term you're solving for, um, the number of grading vector shifts on the frequency appear down here. That's the mathematical sort of solution for the amplitude of the the, uh, wave vector components. We can understand it, I think, a little better with a picture. Here's our periodic material I drawn it as if it's layered we can think of it as a grading and there being a particular K vector for that grading if you like you can think of that grading as a superposition of counterpropagating waves in which case you get a standing wave pattern which looks like a grading and one of those counterpropagating waves would have a K vector of k sub g 2 pi over the wavelength of the grating, would point normal to the interfaces OK, so that's the grating k vector. Our incident k vector is coming in. Then in order for the light to be reflected, the reflected beam will have a k vector of minus k. It's pointing in the opposite direction. For momentum to be conserved, the incident momentum, which is h bar k plus any momentum gain from a kick from the grating, that would be h bar k sub g has to give me my final momentum of minus h bar k. So here I've drawn the incident momentum plus four kicks from the grating gives me my final momentum. And I'm only going to get this reflection occurring, or we can call it a uh, diffraction from this grating, if the incident k vector is precisely the right length, such that there's an integer number of kicks from the grating that it can get in order to be shifted into this reflected wave. So this has four kicks. It's absorbing four phonons from the grating. So this, is, um, this would represent a field that we would represent over here, as a L equals 4 field. So if L equals 4, we would have E naught k minus 4 times 2 pi over lambda. And we would find that k minus 4 times 2 pi over lambda is this k vector. So k minus 4 of these grading k vectors is my new grating k vector, and if that is an allowed for the for the frequency of light that I'm using, if that's an allowed wave vector, it has the right length, and in this case, it has to be the same length as this incident k vector in order to be a uh, possible solution. If that's the case, then we will get a reflected wave um, and coupling from this incident to this reflected. If it's not an allowed K vector, then we won't. If it's an allowed K vector, this denominator becomes small. Otherwise, it's not, and the term would be negligible. Okay, so here are those expressions again. If we have a term. That couples resonantly to the uh, through the grating, so one of these terms in the denominator is small, so I'll call it the l term, and k minus l grating k vectors. Um, I'm sorry, in the case where that where you don't have that resonant coupling, then you don't have a coupling to a backwards diffracted wave, and the light will just propagate through the material. So if it can't efficiently diffract into a reflected wave, it won't. It'll have to propagate through. And that means only the zeroth order term is going to be significant. And if only the zeroth order term is significant, that means we have this relationship. The denominator being small means this relationship. And that's saying the phase velocity, um, omega over k, is just that due to the average index of refraction in the material. The average index of refraction is square root of epsilon zero over epsilon n. However, if we do have efficient coupling from our incident k vector after some L number of X from the grading, coupling to a, a possible solution. The omega squared u epsilon 0 are uh, solutions for possible k values in the material. So if that's the case, then we're going to have um, a term that couples where we have one plane wave amplitude and another one at a different frequency that add up to give a 0 in the wave equation like so. And we'll only need to consider those terms. Those terms in L. So the idea here is that by writing our infinite series, um, series of terms that have to equal 0, that represents the wave equation, by solving it For the amplitude of the different terms, we can find the terms that are going to be significant, neglect the others, and simplify our infinite um, expression into an expression of just two terms, the two terms that couple. And in this case, uh, we'll call those terms at frequency k, and at frequency k minus 2 pi m over lambda. So m will be a specific value for l at which the coupling occurs. And so if there's only one term in this sum that's significant, then we don't need to keep this infinite sum. We'll just pull out the term that's significant and write this, uh, this wave equation in terms of those two coupled frequency components. We have the amplitude of our of our k vector k, or the amplitude of our um, plane wave at k coupling to the one at k minus 2 pi m over lambda. And we will require that k be a solution to propagation through through the material for the average index of our fraction, meaning um, k is going to equal k minus omega squared u epsilon u epsilon 0 um, That comes from this term and the L equals zero term here coming over. And if we have the wave vector at frequency k and at frequency k minus 2 pi m over lambda coupling, then we also have, uh, we can also interchange these and say that there must be coupling between the k minus 2 pi m over lambda and plus k. So if two different frequencies can couple by m uh, momentum kicks from the grading k vector then we can start at this frequency and go down or we can start at this frequency and go up. So we have two equations and we have this field amplitude and this field amplitude that we don't know. Those two equations are functions of those two field amplitudes. So we could write that as a matrix expression. Some factor times e0k here, and some factor times e0k there. Some factor times e0k minus 2 pi m over lambda, and some factor times e0k minus 2 pi m over lambda there. And a solution to these two two expressions will require that the determinant of that matrix equals 0. So the determinant of that matrix we can find, we write it like this. And we'll make use of the fact that epsilon m times epsilon minus m uh, is epsilon squared. Then We have this, which we call our dispersion relationship. So we've taken our initial dispersion relationship, which had an infinite number of terms. We said, let's assume that there's uh, two of those terms that dominate. Then this is the dispersion relationship in terms of those two dominant terms. And we can solve this. This is a, uh, I guess, a fourth-order expression in capital K, or in omega. And so we can solve it for K or for omega, and there will be four roots. If I solve it for K, this is the solution. There's the plus or minus here and the plus or minus there, and that gives me four roots. I could just as easily have solved this for omega in terms of K. So the dispersion relationship is a relationship between omega and k, and here I've explicitly written that as k equals some function of omega, which you can plot. Pick a value for omega, calculate the value of k, and that plot is shown here. Let's see. This is uh, can't read the axis. I believe that's omega over probably over omega naught, where omega naught is. Uh, 2 pi over the wavelength and that wavelength will turn out to be half of that wavelength this is k measured in units of capital lambda and what we find is that for any value of omega there are two possible values of k there's actually four um, there's two that are shown in this graph This graph will repeat again over here. And as you go in frequency towards some nominal frequency, we'll call omega naught. As you get closer to it, the two possible k vectors get closer together. And at some point, they're equal. And above that point, there's no real, real solution for k. So this dotted line represents the imaginary part of k. I shouldn't say there's no real solution. There's the solution for k becomes complex. The real value is a straight line. The imaginary value is given by this dotted line. So this range of frequencies have a complex k vector. This is our band gap. Now we're just plotting it as a function of frequency at a nominal incident angle. And in fact, you can take this plot, and you can expand it in, uh, in k and go further, further out. And what you see is that this, this omega k relationship is, is periodic, and there's multiple bands. There's multiple solutions at different frequencies. And there are forbidden bands at which there are no solutions. There are no real solutions. Okay, so this was our expression for K. Uh, It might have been, when I look at it now, it might have been more intuitive to solve this for omega instead of K. Um, But when you have the Bragg condition met, and I think this has an error in the notes. You might want to correct this if you're following along. When the Bragg condition is met, meaning that um, momentum is conserved, what the Bragg condition was when we had acousto-optics. Our incident k-vector plus the k-vector kick from the grating equals our final k-vector. And my k-vector is a propagating solution in the average index of the material. If I make those two assumptions, I can, for example replace this omega squared mu epsilon naught with k squared. And I can solve for um, regions, values of omega that will give me real solutions to k, meaning this exponent is, or this, this argument inside the root is positive. And I can find regions of omega where it's not the case. So it's real when omega squared is less than this value or omega squared is greater than that value. It's complex when it's between those two values. In an isotropic material, we say omega squared is k squared over mu epsilon. And here what we have is omega squared has to be between k squared mu and now we have our epsilon is being modified. There's a zeroth order term, and there's the uh, Fourier frequency component for the mth, the mth frequency component. And so our average permittivity can get um, we can treat it as being reduced by that amount or increased by that amount. Um, and for spatial frequencies between the two values uh, that you would have for the permittivity being increased or decreased by that that Fourier frequency component, we get no real solutions. So we have our complex solutions. The center of this frequency range is when our uh, shifted k vector equals omega squared mu epsilon naught. You can see that pretty clearly. Just let epsilon, let m go to 0. So we have this condition for the center of the band gap. And we can solve for the width of the band gap by taking the difference in frequencies, um, which I guess we do on the next slide. Um, at At the center, if we take this value for omega, and plug it into here, we can solve for k, and we get a relationship for um, for the real and imaginary parts of k at the band gap center. This imaginary part is what gives rise to the attenuation, and the greater the periodicity, the greater the index contrast in the material, the greater the attenuation will be. So we would expect that. If if the nth order term, uh, the nth order Fourier amplitude goes to zero, as our grading becomes weaker and weaker and weaker, um, the attenuation becomes less and less and less. And we can solve for the width of that gap. That also is a function of the the, uh, contrast of the modulation. So the amplitude of the nth order 4A frequency component compared to the zeroth order. And so we can write the, because the band gap depends on the same parameters that go into the uh, attenuation coefficient, we can write the attenuation coefficient in terms of the band gap. The bigger our band gap, the more attenuation we have at its center. Okay, so sort of recapping what we can do here. We have a dispersion relationship that I've written here. Um, We can pick a frequency of light that we're interested in. So we've got a laser. It's at a certain frequency. It's going into our material. So we know the frequency. We can calculate K. Um, K may be complex. If it is, we know there's going to be attenuation. Once we know what value K can have, or more specifically, what values can have multiple values, um, we will plug those into our um, relationships for the amplitude of the different plane wave components. We said there had to be a solution when the determinant of the matrix was zero, and that gave us this relationship. But that doesn't tell us what the solution is. So in order to find the solution, we calculate K. um, We plug it in. here and here, we have our omega, and lambda is a function of the the material it's propagating through. We can then solve for what the field amplitudes are at the different uh, components. And once we know those, we can construct what the waveform looks like. So there's the waveform. It comes from all the different plane wave components, the amplitude of which we have just calculated, and the frequency of which is given by the Vector. So we add those up, and we get a waveform. Okay, so we can do this. So this is the example that hopefully makes some sense of all of this. Let's do an example we've sort of already done, which is just a, a layered periodic structure. We'll choose some numerical values so that I can evaluate this in Mathematica and generate some plots. Our low-index material is glass-like. It has an index of 1.5. Our high-index material, choose 1.8. And what I want to do is find what the waveform looks like inside of this material. So this material is chosen such that the wavelength of light that I'm using, uh, this is a quarter-wavelength stack. So what do you expect the quarter-wavelength stack to do Reflect. Okay, so it should reflect. Can we venture a guess as to what the amplitude might look like inside of it? So you go from z equals zero to we'll call it L, just some number of waves. The incident field is a sinusoidal electric field. Does it all reflect off of the first surface? Last time we saw that we could calculate um, the eigenvalue for the translation matrix, which told us how much its amplitude and phase change going through one period. And then it changes by the same amount going through the next period, the same amount through the next period. If something changes by the same percentage each period, what what functional form does it have? An exponential decay. Okay, so, maybe something like that. That's an exponential decay. This isn't the answer. What's wrong with that uh, hypothesis? I lost my oscillations. And I can ask, should there be oscillations? Uh, Let me go back. We're assuming we're at the center of the band gap. Here's my wave vector. Here's my attenuation coefficient. But it's not purely imaginary. There's still a real part. What does the real part of a k-vector do? It gives oscillations. Okay, So rather, What I've drawn is like the envelope of the decaying oscillations. So I would expect maybe something like this. It's still periodic. It has a real component to the k vector, but it has some exponential attenuation as well. And so that's the field for the forward-going wave. What about the backwards propagating wave? I know that what comes out of this should look like this. So, this is the reflected field. What will that look like inside of the material? Yeah. So, as the incident field dies out, the amount that gets converted to the reflected field is. Proportionally less, and so these these will be or should be proportional to each other. That's what we expect. Let's see what the math gives us at it. Okay, so when we have uh, lots of ugly equations, how do we deal with the math? Yeah, that's how I deal with it, and. Most of what's written here in the first slide are equations from the notes earlier. So our dispersion relationship is written right here. This is the, um, the determinant of the matrix of the two equations that represented the, um, the wave equation at the two frequencies of interest. Okay, so I'm calling EPM, that's epsilon sub m, mu omega OK, ep0 is my zeroth order epsilon term. And I'm setting this whole thing equal to 0. And I'm calling that my dispersion relationship. In the notes, I explicitly solved for k. If I hadn't solved, oh. if I take this function right here and I solve it for k. I was calling that my dispersion relationship. If I don't bother to solve it for k, it's still a dispersion relationship, just not explicitly written for k or omega. So I left it in that general form. And I had Mathematica solve it for k. And it's a fourth-order polynomial, so it has four roots. And Mathematica finds all four. I also had it solve it for omega, and it finds four roots in terms of omega. Uh, Here here, here, and here. So that if I want to plot something versus omega, I can. If I want to plot it versus k, I can. I've got it solved both ways. And I give those names. There are four solutions in k. I call them k1, k2, k3, k4. Four solutions in omega that I call w1, 2, 3, and 4. And now I tell it about my system. I've got a low index material of index 1.5, a high index of 1.8. My equations have epsilon in them, not indices. How does epsilon relate to the index of refraction? It's index squared, or at least the epsilon divided by epsilon naught is the index squared. Um, So I've written that in terms of the index squared. I've chosen a particular wavelength that wasn't specified in the problem, and it's really not a Necessary parameter for the problem, but in order to do things numerically, I wanted a number. So I chose uh, 1064 nanometers, 1064 nanometers. What wavelength is that? Why is that of significance? It's a Yag laser. New Yag laser. Speed of light, uh, omega naught, now is what I'm going to scale all my frequency plots with respect to. And that's going to be the frequency in free space that corresponds to this wavelength. And that wavelength is important, because that'll define my quarter wavelength stacks. i also define a k-naught. The k-vector in free space, then, is 2 pi over wavelength. OK, so those are general parameters. Um, I also tell it the value of epsilon-naught here. And the average value of epsilon I've defined as the average value from these two. Um, Just for simplicity, I'll call it uh, f0 instead of having to add those and subtract those each time. Mu, my wavelength in the material is half a wavelength. So my unit cell is a half a wavelength. Um, I'm going to be concerned with the m equal 1 order, I'll assume that the first order Fourier coefficient is the largest. If I have an index gradient that looks like this, where this is 1.5 and this is 1.8, and I expand that um, in terms of a frequency, uh, Fourier frequency components, I'm going to get Frequency distribution that follows a sinc function in the first term will be my largest. Uh, And I have calculated that the Fourier the amplitude of this Fourier frequency component is, you get this just from the Fourier analysis, 2 over pi, epsilon high minus epsilon low. And I'm defining my k vector to be k naught times x, meaning the x-axis in all of my plots is going to be my k vector. And when x equals 1, That's my nominal k vector. That's the k vector associated with the wavelength in free space. Okay, so those are the variables that I'm going to use to plug into these solutions. When you do that and you plot the result, you don't really see anything interesting. All the interesting details get lost in the numerical precision of Mathematica. Basically, the band gap is very small. So, in order to see it, I created a set of fake variables where I increased, what did I increase the size of? Epsilon m. Only I don't see that. Yeah, I see it there. I just don't. Oh, oh, yeah. OK, there's a 10 to the 12 there. I was looking over here. I've increased the magnitude of this, the first Fourier frequency component, by 10 to the 12, just to make it easily visible. And then I plotted that dispersion relationship. I've plotted omega as a function of k. So I take one of those solutions for omega, called it w2 and w4, and I plot them as a function of k, which is on my x-axis. And what I find is that there's two solutions. And then as they get close to k0, they're going towards each other, but they never get to intersect. There's a band gap in between. And if I don't use those fake variables, but I use the original ones that didn't have the increase in the uh, periodicity by 10 to the 12, this plot would have just looked like an x. Um, So without the periodicity, this plot would be an x. Um, The slope of this line, slope of omega versus k, is the group velocity. So some interesting properties here. The group velocity is basically constant up until you get near the band gap. And then it slows down. So, some interesting things happen near the band gap. You get this strong dispersion. The group velocity is changing a lot with wavelength or with with k vector. Any thoughts on why that, how you could, a physical picture that would explain that? So, I'll start explaining it when, if you think it makes sense at some point, jump in and finish. As you get closer to the band gap, um, the material becomes more and more reflecting. And the light, let's see if we have our layers. Okay, far from the band gap, the light essentially just propagates through. You get a little bit of reflection off the layers, but they don't add up constructively. And, You get no significant reflection. As you get closer and closer to the band gap, those reflections become more and more significant. And you get sort of the light bouncing back and forth many times. As it goes back and forth many times, its net velocity is slower. and at the band gap, or like once you reach the edge of the band gap, you can't propagate into the material so you can no longer have a positive group velocity. Um, So there's two group velocities. One's positive, one's negative. One's forward, one's backwards. Um, Let's use that dispersion relationship now and figure out what the wave looks like, see if it matches our expectation over here. We have um, values for k1 and k2 at the center of the band gap that I explicitly wrote out from the notes. I could have had Mathematica solve the values of k at the center of the band gap for me. I explicitly wrote it out Here are those k vectors. The only thing that was different about them was one was a plus and one was a minus. One had a real part plus some attenuation. One had a real part minus an attenuation. So what is the effect of changing the sign of the imaginary part? Yeah, one will grow and the other one will decay. And so um, let's, let's see that in the plots. Um, our two equations that related the amplitude of the k vectors, E0 and EM, so the amplitude of the zero, uh, zeroth order term and the nth frequency shifted term. Those two expressions are written here. Remember, it's was the determinant of that that gave me the dispersion relationship. The dispersion relationship tells me how omega and k are related. So I've chosen a value for omega at the center. I've calculated the value of k, plug that in, and now I can solve for E0 in terms of EM, or vice versa, EM in terms of E0. So I have Mathematica do that. I have it solve um, equation one and equation two with my variables that I defined at the center of the the center of the band gap with either of those particular k vectors. And I'm going to normalize E0 to be 1 so that Em is the relative amplitude of the nth frequency component compared to the 0th. And I solve for Em and I get these two values. I get uh, exponentially decaying values for the nth order term and an amplitude that's about 10% that of the zeroth order term. So I can plot those. I can take and say the electric field is the sum of E0, my incident electric field, oscillating at a frequency corresponding to the center of my band gap. That was K0 plus the nth order amplitude oscillating in a frequency that's shifted from that center of the band gap by 2 pi over lambda times m. And I can do that for either of the two solutions that I got. And when I plot those, one is exponentially growing, one is exponentially decaying. Okay, so I would expect the decaying one to be the physical one. The growing one essentially just tells me what happens if I have light illuminating from the other side. I can think of it as light from the right being attenuated going through the material. Or I can think of the time reverse of that as light from the left being amplified as it goes through the material. And that matches pretty much what we expected. Um, This is a problem that we could solve the other way, the way we did last time in class, which was to consider the reflection at each interface and how the waves propagate across one unit cell. And then we had an ABCD matrix that described that. We had some uh, relationships between that ABCD matrix and what the block waveform k-vector looked like. This way, though, is more general. It doesn't require we have layers and interfaces. Um, it can be used to solve for other values of m. So in this particular example, I said that the only frequency component which was significant was the m equals 1. But I could evaluate the m equals 2 component as well, and the m equals 3 component. And those are going to be significant at different frequencies. Um, if I double my spatial frequency, cut the wavelength in half, then this second spatial frequency component becomes the dominant one. In our band gap plots, there were multiple band gaps. And so we've sort of been looking at the first first band gap that corresponds to the m equals one term. Um, But what we find is that, I guess m equals three, m equals five, those are significant terms as well. And yeah, for a uh, for a periodic step function like this, it's the odd order terms, which are non-zero. And so at twice the or at three times the frequency. I have coupling from a three times higher grading K vector, giving rise to this band gap. And at five times the frequency of that, that next band gap. OK, I, think I went over these slides already in class last time so um, the math is relatively straightforward I think for this but it's easy to get lost along the way of why we're going through all these steps Um, hopefully the example made some sense Um, if not you have two different ways that you can go about solving for the beam splitter problem that you have in the homework Uh, either one will work this one's a little more general um, and turns out to be useful when we talk about two and three dimensional periodic structures as well. So that's what we're going to do next time. We're going to talk about two and three dimensional periodic structures. We call those photonic crystals. And you get a lot of really bizarre and interesting behaviors in those materials. Um, so kind of neat stuff. A lot of, a lot of devices that have been de- developed just in the past ten years um, using these engineered materials. Um, so I've been learning a little bit about them myself and putting together a Set of new lecture notes uh, that wasn't online yet. I put it up today, but it's like part two of chapter seven. So you, you want to look for that.